Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to ARK's FYI, the podcast on everything happening in innovation. Today, I have a special guest and someone whose work I've followed for a long time. He is Siraj Raval. He's the director at the School of AI. He's a data scientist, a YouTuber, an author, and an AI researcher, and as well as a rapper. Siraj, welcome to FYI. Hi, James. Good to be here. Thank you for taking the time to do this. You've been, I would say, the premier educators for artificial intelligence and everything that's happening in deep learning for the past couple of years now. I think there are people who perhaps are more famous or have more more papers and have more impact that way. But when I think about who has actually taught more people the guts and basics of AI and really doing it in a simple and entertaining manner, you're the first person I think about. And when people ask me, hey, how can I get started? I'm maybe learning a bit about this deep learning business. I say, hey, check out Siraj's videos on YouTube. How did you get into artificial intelligence and why did you become, why did you decide to focus as a, a YouTube educator, if you will? Well, yeah, first, thanks, James, for saying that. I started three years ago when I was I was working at a company called Twilio, and I was let go from the company. And I remember that, that very day, I, I walked across the street to a salon in San Francisco, and I dyed my hair to this, like, silver. Yes. And I felt sad, but at the same time, relieved and excited because now I had the opportunity to work on YouTube full-time and, and educate full-time. Were you already doing it part-time while at Twilio? I was doing it part-time. I mean, my role there was a developer educator. I was a developer educator. So I was writing documentation for several different programming languages, you know, PHP, Ruby, Python. And I learned that technical documentation was an art. It wasn't just something you tack on at the end, mm. but it's very crucial to your API, whatever service you're building. And I used the, what I learned and I applied it to video but at the time, I was trying to incorporate it into my stack at work at Twilio, but they were going in a different direction at the time. So I decided to experiment by opening my own YouTube channel and then having all that free time. And of course, a nice little like package of like, you know, when you like are let go, you get a little package. What's that called again? Severance. Yeah, severance. <laughs> I was like, I've got this runway for this couple of months here in San Francisco. Yep. I better make this thing profitable. Let's go. So it was like risky, but also I was very much inspired by a lot of hip hop artists, especially Kanye West at the time mm -hmm. to just be weird and be myself and incorporate all my weirdness into a, some kind of product being myself. Yes. that I could then use to inspire and educate people. A personal brand. Yeah, I think some context here might be helpful. For anyone who hasn't checked it out, I would highly encourage you to check out Siraj's YouTube channel. Normally, when you think about an educational video on something like as dry as 
linear algebra. You're just thinking some generic Audacity course or maybe a stream lecturer from a university, and it's it's really really not much fun. Suraj's videos are basically entertainment. You're watching entertainment and surreptitiously you're being fed AI juice. And that's why I think they've become so popular. He has more than half a million subscribers on his channel. When you were building this, I guess, your personal brand, how has the growing the audience been that, that experience? How do you build an audience on YouTube? I've heard lots of complaints that you know YouTube is a very difficult platform to monetize successfully and to make sure that you get seen by your fans. And some make it and some don't, even though they have great content. Could you talk a little about how you built your content strategy and how you were able to build that audience up to more than half a million subscribers? So a lot of it is experimentation. And I was learning from the BuzzFeed CEOs, basically all of his content of how BuzzFeed is this giant experiment machine where they just try out things and then keep doing what works. And so I kind of applied that to my own videos and thinking, let me just try this. Let me try a rap. Let me try do a dance or, you know, all these different techniques that weren't traditionally in the education space. And then looking at the data, the analytics on YouTube, looking at audience retention over, you know, X number of seconds or minutes, I could see where spikes went up, went down. And I basically took a data-driven approach to content creation. And then of course the audience feedback, which, you know, some might be afraid of because it's very direct and it can be critical. But I just took everything, you know, as feedback, helpful feedback, you know, performing sentiment analysis with my own mind on it and just readjusting every single week based on the audience and what they want and what they expect. And it was really, really hard as hell. (laughs) I can't tell you, like when I first started, I was going crazy, like, because I was doing everything myself. I was editing. I was thinking of all these things, I had deadlines when I worked with Udacity on the deep learning course, they had never had a production cycle that was every week. It was maybe two weeks minimum, but you know, three weeks or four weeks more. But because I just released videos every week, the entire Udacity team adapted to that. And so they got into this flurry that I'm, I'm in. So they aligned and there were a lot of expectations there because it was a paid course. So that was really difficult, but a learning experience as well. That's interesting. So you kind of the core disciplines of actual data science, which is being data-driven and getting that feedback, it's almost like you're using that and reinforcement learning to make your own product better week to week. Exactly. RL. Yes. <laughs> if there was one thing that you learned through how to, how to how people responded or what was one thing that you did that, that really seemed to drive engagement, what was that? It's a great question. Generally, applications of AI that make people money as opposed to social impact which I was surprised at first, but then, you know, that's humanity for now. (laughs) We can better approximate the relationships between value creation and capital over time. I mean, right now there are companies that pour pollutants into the water and they get paid massively to do that. But at the same time, a teacher in a, you know, low income public school is undervalued. But over time, I believe with technologies like blockchain technology, for example, but I mean, let me rephrase that distributed ledger technology. We're not using blockchain anymore we can better approximate the relationship between value and capital. And that's one benefit of technology over time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But stylistically, the things you do in your videos, like for example, when you just, when you're hard in the core of explaining a paper and you just deadpan with a Kanye joke, for example, I find that like irresistible, just as my attention might be drifting off, it just pulls me back in. Have you like, are there a few things along those lines that you found really work well with audiences? Did they give you the feedback? 
Yeah, they will generally people comment even more on those little jokes than they do on the actual content of the video. <laughs> it's like, for example, I had this video on biotechnology recently that I, I really put my heart and soul into this video, like more than I think 90% of the videos I've made, like I really dived into biotech. And one comment I saw was like, there are two things I got from this video. One is like something about my hair or something. And the second was Starbucks will never survive in Italy. That was like one sentence joke that I placed in a giant script. And so, yeah, I mean, people give me feedback. They like the jokes and I'm just going to keep doing it. And I used to actually, for my memes, I used to Google them. Mm. So I, I would Google like, you know, LSTM meme, yeah. pick a one that I found funny. Now I make them in the past, like two months. I've just, cause you're not going to find a meme of like, you know, Attention. you know, with the girlfriend and the <laughs> other guys, yes. like opening our research, you know, like recurrent networks, transformer. Yeah. So you got to make them sometimes. That's cool. Let's talk about AI and, and kind of where the industry is headed right now. You've had a video that recaps the progress, the most important stuff that happened in AI in 2018. And we've had some really interesting developments even in the two months up to 2019. I mean, there are famous announcements and maybe there's stuff that's a little under the hood. What do you think has been the most meaningful, impactful, maybe a little underappreciated from both research and application for call of deep learning? Two things are very underappreciated. One is AlphaFold. Even though I made a video, even though they have a lot of press, it's still underappreciated. I had some talks. I had a talk in Paris and Mumbai recently, so in front of a live audience. Mm -hmm. So I got to see that like live feedback you know, as to what people would react when I said certain things, which you can't really get from YouTube comments. So I would mention AlphaFold. And I said, you know, by show of hands, who's heard of this? And like 20%-ish of the audience in both places uh, raised their hand. Gotcha. And it's like, if we solve protein folding, which is the application of AlphaFold, DeepMind's technology, we can basically get way closer to solving hunger because we can create new types of biomaterials that can increase crop yields. We can cure so many diseases, increase human well-being and, and longevity. It's a super important problem. And I think that because of the complexity of both biology and AI technology, not a lot of people are appreciating that. So that's number one. Number two is the entire country of China and their contributions to AI and just where they are. You know, people have this bias towards China. Like they just think like, oh, China, they're afraid of it. They think of all of these, you know, words like communist and like triggering words like that. But it's like, put all that aside for a second. Like people are all generally kind of the same everywhere. You know, they might have different values and stuff, but it's super exciting what's happening in China right now. Like I'm learning Mandarin. I'm super hype about China. I might go check it out. I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to say anything, but I might go check it out. And yeah. Cool. Well, let's talk about those two. I certainly would plead guilty to having kind of been sleeping a little on AlphaFold. I've heard, I, I followed the news when it came out, but in my mind, you know, we've heard a lot about the promise of synthetic biology, uh, well, synthetic uh, chemistry and biology and what protein folding would be able to do. There are many classical approaches to this and, you know, all the way back to folding at home, the kind of distributed folding client when, when people were trying to get individual computers to solve this. I mean, there's a whole class of algorithms and this seems like one more step toward the direction. How much better is AlphaFold over, call it the, you know, well-known examples and, and current algorithms for protein folding? So in terms of how much better, so it, it won first place in the protein folding competition by a large margin against a lot of pharmaceutical companies like Novartis, 
which have 100,000 plus employees, which is a huge deal. Like DeepMind is amazing as an AI research lab, but they're total noobs when it comes to molecular biology that they beat these companies. In terms of other algorithms that have been tried, orders of magnitude better. But one thing to note about AlphaFold and in general, a lot of the advances right now, I'm making a video about AlphaStar, which is their next one. One thing to note about all of these algorithms is that they're decades old. They've been around. The real value is the amount of data and compute that are being applied to it. Right. That's certainly the approach that seems to be making the greatest, well, delivering the greatest results. Maybe we can just get to to the OpenAI example here since we're since we're on that topic. You just recently made a video about OpenAI's text generator, which is called GPT-2. Tell us about what they've, I guess, uh, what was the key, what was so impressive about that achievement? The fact that the text was so coherent, it, it was so realistic, it legit looked like a human wrote that text, which is just super exciting for me because I immediately think of the positive applications of it, like we can use it as a tool to help increase our writing ability and it democratizes the ability to write, right. which is super cool. But of course, there's negative effects as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm going to try to talk to Jack Clark about that maybe next week. The, nice. for, for anyone who hasn't followed it, we, we wrote it up in our newsletter about two weeks back. But this is just a deep learning program that's able to write with the fluidity and, and flexibility and just the tone of a human writer. But you know, I got very excited about this when, I, when it came out. But as I've read some of the more critical takes and I've talked to some of the you know, professors in this field, they keep re- referencing, you know, we've had this history. They will always reference literature. You know, we've had text generation going back when. And if you look at the actual semantics of what it means, sentence by sentence, it sounds quite convincing, but there's this famous passage about unicorns, right? It's like scientists discovered unicorns in Latin America, but in the text, it will literally say these four horned unicorns, despite unicorn having the definition of one horn. What do you think of like, how much of it is ingenuity, like it actually knows what it's trying to express and how much of it is just like its huge training data set and, and just shuffling and imitating style without having any sense of what it's actually saying? So causal reasoning, the ability to map different concepts across widely varying disciplines is still a huge problem in AI. I can point to Jan LeCun. He also agrees on this, uh, director of AI at Facebook Research. I mean, these are, what it's doing is just predicting the probability of the next word in a sequence of words, Yeah. right? We can represent these words as numbers. It's just, it's still not, it's not applying causal reasoning where it's being, it, it knows that a unicorn has a certain set of features and it, and a unicorn is derived from a, another type of horse and that it is a mythology. And then what is a mythology? It's not like that. It's, it's more just seeing Pattern matching, basically, self-supervised yes. learning, the label being the next word. Yes. So it's not quite there. In, I mean, when we write, we do have that intent and we do, we have some level of consistency in knowing what we're trying to express. It's not just, what do we think the next word should be given all my prior experiences of reading, which is kind of more stylistically what the open eye algorithm is doing. Exactly. And, and I think over time, you know, since I've been doing this, it's only been three years, but when I started, I was super gung-ho, like AI is going to become a god. <laughs> it's going to literally become a superhuman god and just be way smarter than all of us. Now I'm just, after you know, understanding these techniques more and realizing that these are just mathematical tools, and after reading Kai-Fu Lee's amazing book, AI Superpowers, especially the end where he says, let machines be machines and humans be humans, 
what is the only thing humans can do to love and to be loved? I, th- I found that very touching in that I don't want to get too meta here, but I've been reading a lot, especially on quantum mechanics after, you know, D-Wave invited me. So I've been, I've been thinking about entanglement and superposition and the implications of that for consciousness. I've also been thinking about whether or not we can replicate consciousness in machines. And I guess all that is to say that I'm less in the, you know, team of, oh, of course we can replicate consciousness in a machine. And I'm more like, this is just a tool to enhance our own consciousness, which might not be irreducible to digital ones and zeros. Do you think we can have artificial general intelligence without solving consciousness? Yeah, I feel like I should have like a one word easy answer for that now, like after all this time, but I'm more confused than ever, to be (laughs) honest. The more I read, the more confused I get. Yeah. So I my my guess is I mean it depends on what you define as AGI, but I would say if we define AGI as an algorithm able to do any task that we ask it, I think that's possible without Mm -hmm. consciousness. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I think the fundamental, I guess, one way to ask this question of how far we can go with AI is, you know, we have, you know, in Domingo's classification, where there are five schools of AI and, and eventually we, if they can just learn from each other, we'll be able to get there. One question I have, the way I think about this is, are the existing techniques enough? And is it just a matter of scaling? For example, all the recent breakthroughs have been just about scaling data about one or two orders of magnitude and scaling compute, you know, five, six orders of magnitude. And we've had these remarkable results without serious algorithmic breakthroughs. Does it appear to you that if we just continue this approach, no fancy ingredients, no real breakthroughs on an algorithmic level, can we get to something like AGI just with the current primitives of things like neural networks, transformers, maybe some evolutionary computing? I think we can definitely reach new state of the arts by increasing data and compute for sure. Like one great area that I think has been undervalued and not, it's not been paid enough attention to are Hopfield networks. Hopfield networks are uh, a really cool technique and it's, it, they're very different from normal neural networks, but not a lot of people have paid attention to them. So I'm sure if we apply more data and compute there, we could get to some new results. Also, capsule networks. What what happened? Like there was a lot of hype. We just kind of lost interest. We need to get back to that. But in terms of AGI, no, no, no. I think for AGI, we need something entirely different. And I side with Hinton when he said, "Let's just throw away back propagation and think about something entirely new." And he's like the grad student who is suspicious of everything that I say is our hope for the future of AI, mm. which is so self-aware and long-term thinking, which is why he's a total G. I mean, it is inspiring. It's also very scary, isn't it? Because all the progress we've made recently since 2012 has been about scaling the existing stuff. We haven't really come up with anything new that's worked. So if to get to AGI, we need something new, then there's really no way to forecast it, no way to know if we'll get there. That's true. That's true. I mean, the best we can do is to just try to make as many people as aware of this as possible and get as many different types of perspectives and cultures and value systems and genders and just all different types of brains looking at this problem as possible. And that way we can prevent overfitting and have a generalized intelligence. Yeah. That makes sense. One problem that is extremely 
popular and well-invested and, and I think a lot of our listeners want to hear about is kind of self-driving cars as an AI problem. You have a video of called like how to create a self-driving car algorithm. And how do you view this problem? Like one, the first order question I ask when I think about this is, is this an AGI problem or is this a narrow artificial intelligence problem? What is your opinion on that? There are a lot of edge cases when it comes to self-driving cars. A lot of these like moral ethical scenarios, like should, should it kill one person or should it kill, you know, should it kill a child? Like if it has to bump, like, you know, crash into a child versus an older person, mm -hmm. what life has more value? Yeah. I mean, I don't find those scenarios, like the trolley problem, all these ethical problems, it doesn't seem like, A, humans have the same quandrum. It's not like we solve those ethical problems, right? Two perfectly rational humans can disagree on what is the right lever in the trolley problem. So I don't think they're really AI problems. They're more like open-ended ethics problems. That's true. That's true. Yeah. We just assign those to AI because it's like offloading the blame to <laughs> machines, which I, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, we still haven't gotten, we still have, we don't have any end-to-end -end approach to self-driving cars. It's, it's still, you know, very modular. And then what was it? Elon just like yesterday said that, not yesterday, two days ago, he promised like Tesla would have a fully self-driving car by the end of this year, I think. Yes. So that's, that's promising. Yes. But in your work in, in trying to, I guess, write the code and, and look some training data, does it appear to be a problem that's tractable? just scaling the amount of data and compute, like, can we solve it just using that brute force approach? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, every few weeks, I feel more confident with that, you know, idea because, I mean, GPT-2 was still underfit, hmm, even though it true. was given that much compute, like more compute than probably anybody in the world has. I mean, Google has more, but like a lot, you know, top 1%. Okay. I guess to me, it's a little surprising because Google's been working on this for a while. Presumably, they have a lot of data and they still haven't solved it. You would think by now that they, of all the companies, would have the right combination of data and compute to at least demonstrate solving level four autonomy in a simple city like Phoenix, which is where they're testing. But even there, you know, constrained and the problem being narrow, they're still struggling with it, which is why I keep, I keep asking myself what sort of a problem, AI problem this is? Well, one of my predictions for 2019 was, was that we're going to see a lot more unsupervised learning techniques hit the mainstream, which if we get some advances there, I would love to see those applied to self-driving cars, which could help because a lot of it is supervised. A lot of it, I mean, it's a mixture. It's not, it's not just supervised or unsupervised. Some of it's self-supervised. It's RL as well. Yeah, you would think like we would have something by now. I'm sure there are also like regulatory problems that like internally and there's political problems like inside of a company, bureaucracy. Yeah. But you would think there would be more progress. Yeah. Yeah. I think we were all a little bit surprised, right? Yeah. Like we thought by 2020 for sure <laughs> it's going down, but it might yeah. be a little further out. Yeah. I mean, given that I think maybe one tricky thing about self-driving is it's not one problem, but it's just a long tail of many, many problems, right? And in that sense, maybe the reason why Google hasn't solved it is they actually still don't have enough data even for Google since they don't actually have Google-scale data for self-driving cars. They have how many, a few hundred vans collecting that data. Mm. One theory is that Tesla perhaps would be in a better position to solve this since they actually have tens of thousands of cars collecting data and they may have enough to actually capture the long tail. I guess we'll find out in a year or two. We will. We will. I mean, Tesla's like, what was it? 
80% self-driving, some high number. Like it's self-driving on the freeways here in LA. And not freeways, other roads, everything but freeways. I see. Yeah. Let's talk about your work in education. You can perfectly pick up a job in any of the large internet companies doing AI research or development, but you've chosen not to do that. And you've chosen to really just educate the public and build your personal brand. What was the impetus behind that decision? Has it been a good decision? How are things right now? Things are really good. Things are really good. I mean, honestly, I just took four days off. I was literally going crazy. Not literally. I had like a, a slight panic attack for the first time in my life when I went to Singapore, like for this hackathon that we're hosting. And I just, you know, it's, it's always, it, it's a blessing to have so much attention, you know, because it, it means opportunities and, you know, I can use those to do things, but also, you know, making two to three videos a week and running the school of AI, which is this global meetup learning meetup organization that was a little too much for one person. So I've learned to kind of take a step back, focus on my videos, and then, you know, ask other people for help mm. with some of those things. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I could work at a company, but I could never actually work at a company. I mean, every job I've ever had, I've either quit or I've been fired. I'm like a totally unemployable person because I don't know why. I think I really don't like being told what to do, I guess. <laughs> so that's the main reason. I've always been kind of a wild child, like since day one. I'm actually pretty wild. Like if you get to know me, I do some crazy stuff. Yeah. Example. I've had a lot of near-death experiences. Like you know, you're into extreme I, sports or like what, what are you referring to? So like, you know, a lot of travel stories. Like I've, you know, had guns pointed at me in Houston once. <laughs> I've got suspended from Columbia when I went there to school. We won't go into all of those, but just giving you a little <laughs> taste of. So my point is that I, I take a lot of risks, mm -hmm. but now the difference is that I have calculated risks. So I apply those to content creation and, you know, benefiting other people and educating other people. So even starting School of AI, I was like, all right, apply to be a dean wherever you are, go. And then we got 16, I got 1600 applications. I was like, wow, this is, I could do this. What? All right. I'm just going to pick some of them. And now we have an organization. Could you tell us a little about School of AI? There are a couple of kind of programs out there on the internet, whether it's Fast AI or, or Coursera, that try to help people learn AI on their own. What is the School of AI and how is it different? So the idea behind School of AI was to create this offline gateway for people to enter into the field. A lot of, so I feel like the offline element isn't as present in these amazing educational platforms like the ones you've mentioned. So, you know, our deans, which are representatives for the organization in different cities across the world, will host speakers and they'll teach their local students about AI and, you know, show them a bunch of videos and other sorts of content. But the whole point is for them to be able to get that camaraderie and that sense of community, that safe space to learn that traditionally colleges, universities offer, and especially in the developing world. So, I mean, we're, we're all over the world and so far, so good. So far, so good. Next steps. How many deans are actually, I guess, hosting events in, in real life? So in terms of active deans, we have about 650-ish. Wow. 650. Yeah. And if someone were interested, they, they can find it on, on the School of AI website. Exactly. And, and I'm teaching on, an online course on it right now, Data Lit. And so far, I'm the only online instructor, but there's more coming on that end. 
Let's close off on China. You've been very positive on their developments in AI. Some other people have been quite critical. Some of the press, I think, have pointed out to the concerns with how they are dealing with privacy, which is really just not caring at all. And societally, because it's an authoritarian system, the citizens don't have an expectation that maybe people have in the West. I think they've obviously commercialized AI to incredible success and in ways that's even better than in the West and in Europe. The most valuable private AI companies are Chinese, and I think that's underappreciated. What have you, I guess, observed that's impressed you about AI coming out of China? Have they done I mean, I've seen good product. Have they done good research? And why are you so keen as to even learn Mandarin? So let me start by, do you watch Asian Boss on YouTube? No. This is this great channel. Check it out. But, you know, they, they like interview people on the streets of China and stuff. It's like, what do you think about privacy? Like, what do you mm -hmm. feel about the government? Mm -hmm. And generally, they're like, oh, I mean, it's all good. Look, the Chinese have a different set of values than we do in the West right? They don't value privacy as much. That's okay. It's just different. It's just different. And that, that's something we have to understand. It's a different set of values. It's a lot of it springs from Confucianism, a philosopher that we never read about at Columbia during our core curriculum. It was all Western philosophers. So already there's this best and brightest in the West are indoctrinated into only Western thinking, but we have to broaden our horizons and realize that Lao Tzu and a lot of other great philosophers exist. And there are different ways of thinking and valuing life and culture and society and technology. So that's about the privacy aspect. It's not better or worse. It's just different. The second part is, yes, the government has, you know, a lot of things that are negative about it, but so does every government in the world. No country is perfect. The persecution of the Uyghur minority. Yes, that's one example. But in terms of the number of people that the Chinese government has lifted out, out of poverty, that's, I mean, that, that is the most efficient organization in the world for lifting that num number of people out of poverty. And then the third point is that what is one thing that I find really exciting and interesting about China's interest in AI besides their 2030 plan, which is very concretely and coherently laid out, very simple to understand, even for someone not in AI or in po politics. Besides that, I think that TikTok is pretty cool. TikTok's <laughs> blowing up in, I was just in Singapore. TikTok's blowing up over there. It's, it's coming here to the West. And also their, their apps in general are, I want access to these apps, by the way. I want to get into WeChat. I want to see what's going down. Oh, no, the fact that they have a cashless society, that's super cool. They just like leapfrogged over the POC credit card system because they didn't have it in the first place. So they went from all cash to no cash. And here in the States, we're going to have to wait like, I don't know, five, 10 years for these POC systems to get outdated. Maybe never. The, the, the fact that there is an established solution that works well enough is a huge impediment to new technology getting adoption. Yes. Yeah, it's true. What about on the AI side though? Have you seen, I think the applications like TikTok, which is, but I've tracked all the social media growth and TikTok is the fastest growing social media app by far. Like it is exponentially faster than Facebook and, and Twitter, granted on a more advanced internet age now. But do you see interesting work coming out from a research side? It seems like it's still mostly a model of kind of the US and Canada publishing and China iterating and deploying. Yeah, so that that is the case. Like I, I haven't seen any, you know, kind of research breakthrough and maybe I'm unaware and not to, not to say that this, that doesn't exist, but I just haven't seen it. What I have seen though are some really 
well-documented code samples on GitHub and they're documented in Chinese, but thankfully Google translate, you know, with Chrome, super wow. easy. And a lot of these slideshows, cause you know, I'm always, you know, I'm educating full time. So I'm looking for the best images and things to help with that. A lot of the times they're in Mandarin, but the actual diagrams and stuff are, you know, just uh, general, they're in English. So, so con- educational content and also some code samples, mostly in PyTorch. Also, Udacity started switching a lot of their PyTorch samples to Chinese as well, which is cool. Okay, that's great. Is there anything else you, you might want to touch on or maybe we can close on? It'll be good for you. Quantum machine learning is super exciting. No one knows what the potential is there, but if we make, you know, if we have some kind of breakthrough there, it could be like 100x. That could be the, the next big thing, quantum machine learning. So that's something I'm very closely that will, I guess, require quantum computers to work and, and work at a level that's better than classical machines. That seems to be a timeline that's been always shifting out. Is that true? And do you see that gap finally crossing where we have quantum computers at work better than classical ones in the present? I'm very hopeful that this year we're going to see something in that space, some kind of relevant real-world application especially because I, I saw how hard the team was working at D-Wave when I visited. Mm-hmm. They, they released their API, so any, you know, a lot of people can use it. And IBM has an API as well. So I think there's potential there. Okay, awesome. Siraj, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us today. For sure, thank you. And uh, for our listeners, where can they find your work? YouTube.com slash C slash Siraj Raval. Click subscribe. I'll be very happy. Siraj makes some of the best YouTube content on deep learning. Make sure you check out his work. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to FYI on your favorite podcast service. Thank you very much. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results.